This episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by Molecule, the world's first molecular air purifier that reduces symptoms for allergy and asthma sufferers. For $75 off your first order, visit molecule.com and enter the promo code FOOL. Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at the Motley Fool. Hi, Allison. Hey, bro. In today's episode, we're going to talk about how to build an emergency fund, how to maintain one, and what to do if you don't have one when an emergency does happen. We'll also spend a lot of time remembering Jack Bogle, yeah. the founder of Vanguard, who passed away last week. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So, bro, I have a feeling I already know what's up. Yes. And it's uh, not us. It's not us, no. So, last Wednesday, Vanguard founder Jan- John Bogle passed away at the age of 89. As many longtime fools and listeners will know, he really was an inspiration and a hero to many of us. We have a room named in his honor here at Fool HQ. We've been lucky enough to host him here at Fool HQ a couple times. He even rode in the Fool Mobile several years ago at a, at a convention in Houston. Um, so, he's just been such a figure in many of our lives that with his passing, we thought we'd take this opportunity in this episode just to do a little tribute to him. So let's start with a little bit of biography. And we've talked about him before. So some of this is going over some information we've passed along. And I'm mm-hmm. sure many of you have read some of it. But um, so we won't go too deep into his biography. But he was born in 1929 to a relatively affluent family. Um, but it didn't last very long because then came the Great Depression. His family lost most, his father lost most of the family fortune, and then, according to John Bogle, his father turned to alcoholism, his parents got divorced, and and mostly disappeared from his life at that point, from what I understand. So that made Jack Jack Bogle have to be in a situation where he had to work a lot as a young kid. But he actually didn't think that was such a bad thing, even though, in the course of all this, they lost their family home and they had to move in with relatives. He said that um, He's proud of the many jobs that he had. He worked as a newspaper boy, as a guy who set up pins at a bowling alley, all kinds of these things. But he said, he said, quote, they were tough times, and I started working when I was 10 years old, delivering papers and eventually becoming a waiter. I learned you work for what you get, and I feel sorry for people who haven't had that upbringing. He really does see it as a disadvantage if you didn't have to work a little bit when you were younger. Um, so he eventually gets a full scholarship to Princeton, but he still has to work as a waiter at the school dining hall while he's there. He actually struggles a little bit academically at first, but then recovers and graduates magna cum laude. And then when he was there, even at that young age, he recognized that actively managed mutual funds were a challenge. It was difficult to beat the market. And he wrote uh, his senior thesis called The Economic Role of the Investment Company, in which he said that funds can make no claim to superiority over the market averages. And he wrote that a funds management should operate in the most efficient, honest, and economical way possible. So he sent that thesis on to Wellington Management. The guy who was running the company then liked it so much, he hired Bogle. And Bogle really rose through the ranks. He was kind of uh, the golden boy there for a while. Unfortunately, in 1974, he ended up getting fired after an ill-advised merger, and he called the mistake, quote, shameful and excusable and a reflection of my immaturity. Um, but he also said that if he weren't fired, there never would have been a Vanguard. Now, the story usually goes that he then goes, sets off and, and, and establishes Vanguard very quickly, but actually it was a really tough time for him. He told a biographer that uh, one day he was on a train and he just started crying because he didn't know what he was going to do. He said, I was totally wiped out. I don't recall another time like that when I was wiped out by it all. Still, he, was managed to, he managed to found Vanguard in 1975 with a lineup 11 of 11 actively managed mutual funds. 
So the, what's key here is that Vanguard is not a publicly traded company. It's a, a true mutual company in that it is owned by the funds, which are in turn owned by the shareholders. So if you own a Vanguard fund, you own part of the company. Hmm. And part of that, what's great about that is, as opposed to being like a publicly traded company that has a profit motive, Vanguard just has to cover its costs, which is why they can keep their costs so low. Then, of course, came in 1976 the thing that what Vanguard is mostly known for these days, and that was launching the first publicly available index fund. It was called First Index Invest Investment Trust. Creatively named. Creatively named, and it was a flop. The <laughs> banks that manage it, they were hoping to raise $150 million at launch, but it raised just over $11 million. Uh, Bogle was urged to close the fund. It was called Bogle's Folly. It was called Un-American. But he persevered, and of course, now the fund is the biggest mutual fund in the world. It was also the first, one of the first companies to offer funds directly to people who wanted to invest in them. So, essentially, no-load funds. Up until that point, if you wanted to buy a mutual fund, you had to pay a broker a commission upwards of 8%. So, that's another way that Vanguard has kept costs low for people. Um, and now, so that's all back then. Where are we now? Well, Vanguard is the second biggest money manager in the world, managing more than $5 trillion. Bloomberg's Eric Balchin has once calculated that Bogle, saved, through Vanguard, has saved investors upwards of $175 billion. That's just from the low costs. But then he estimated what the Vanguard effect is, and that is basically not only the actual low cost of Vanguard, but the competition in the industry that has caused people to drive down the cost of their funds. Now, Fidelity is offering a no-fee index fund. He estimates that as a value of a trillion dollars wow. that essentially Bogle and Vanguard has given to American investors. Uh, a few, just a couple of personal other notes about Bogle. He married Eve Sherd in 1956, and they were still married when he passed. So it was a marriage of 62 years, and they had six kids. And she, I assume, is the complete opposite of him in mm. terms of publicity, because I have I did not find a single quote from her. And if you look on the internet, there's like three pictures. Mm. So she's obviously very different from him when it comes to the spotlight. And the other interesting thing about him is that he had a pretty bad heart. Mm. Like he had over the course of his life, starting at age 30, he had anywhere between six and eight heart attacks. Mm until he eventually had a transplant in the 90s, uh, which essentially rejuvenated his life. Mm -hmm. um, but after he had his first heart attack in his 30s, the doctor told him that you're, gonna, you're only going to live to your 40s. You need to stop working. You need to stop exercising. And you shouldn't have any more kids. He obviously ignored all of that because he then had two more kids mm -hmm. after all that. Um, and I think if there's anything that shows the perseverance of Jack Bogle, it's the launching of that index fund and being able to make it what it is today, despite all um, the troubles he had along the way, and that he was able to do this with a bum ticker mm -hmm. and still live to age 89. Um, so, looking at his last interviews over the last couple of months, um, he had some words of caution for investors. So, first of all, um, he could kind of sense it seems like the end was coming. He spoke at the Bogleheads conference in October, and he began quoting the ancient Greek playwright Sophocles and saying, quote, one must wait until the evening to see how the splendid day has been 
And then he added, I think my evening is here, and I don't much like that. Mm. Um, but he said at that meeting, as well as in an interview in Barron's in December, that investors should expect below average returns. He estimates anywhere really as low as 2 to 4% from the stock market, and about the same from bonds. So the solution there, that he told, he, when asked with them, what should people do, the answer is, you just need to have to save a little bit more, and you're going to have to get costs out of the equation. Um, since Bogle passed away on Wednesday, there have been plenty of great tweets and tributes and anecdotes about him. Um, so I just wanted to read a few of those. Um, from friend of the show, Morgan Housel, he tweeted out that John Bogle built a nonprofit business with $5 trillion under management. What would have been profit effectively went to retirees. He's the biggest undercover philanthropist of all time. Mm. Um, Rick Ferry, who's a money manager and author, very active in the Bogleheads group, which is like this, the whole group that's devoted to John Bogle. And that itself is kind of interesting, right? There's no one in the financial services industry that has groupies like John Bogle did. Buffett's groupies, they don't have a name, but he's right. got... It's close. He's got... Oh, yeah. He's got groupies. Right. Um, and Rick is also the person who does the Bogleheads podcast, and he interviewed Jack Bogle in September, which I think is a I recommend to anyone. Mm -hmm. It's a great long podcast about the history of Vanguard. Um, but Rick said in his article, you cannot measure the quality of a man by the size of his bank account, but in John Bogle's case, you can measure it by the size of your bank account. Mm. No one on this planet has done more to increase the lot of individual investors in the last 50 years than John C. Bogle. Um, Bogle also, by the way, was a big fan of the fiduciary rule, which requires all financial advisors to act in the best interest of their clients, which, believe it or not, is a controversial thing. It still hasn't been approved for everyone, uh, but Rick suggests that because Bogle is such a fan of it, if it ever does pass, we call it the Bogle rule. Hmm. Um, speaking of the Bogleheads, uh, David J. and the Bogleheads discussion boards wrote... That sounds like a band. I know. <laughs> uh, he wrote, he could have been a billionaire. Instead, he made hundreds of thousands of us investors millionaires. Bogle put his net worth in 2012 in the low double-digit millions, so 10, 20, 30 million. The guy wasn't poor, right? But compared to other people running mutual funds, he could have been a billionaire. Bogle himself points out that um, the Johnson family that founded um, the Fidelity funds, those family, those folks are worth billions of dollars. Abby Johnson is the chairwoman of Fidelity now. Mm -hmm. She's the great, the, the granddaughter of the founder, Ned Johnson. She alone is worth $15.4 billion just from Fidelity. Right. Vanguard's a bigger company. So you can only imagine what John Bogle would be worth mm -hmm. if he structured the company differently. Mm -hmm. But he chose not to. He chose to instead pass all that along to the shareholders. Kevin O'Leary of Shark Take fame tweeted out that if the only free lunch in investing is diversification, then Jack Bogle ran the most popular diner on Wall Street. He mm. served up indexing and never looked back. He was the rock star maverick of change and the founder of a trillion-dollar industry. His DNA is in every ETF traded. Um, Becky Quick, upon hearing of the death of Jack Bogle, called Warren Buffett. Mm -hmm. Warren Buffett said, Jack did more for the American investor as a whole than any individual I've known. A lot of Wall Street is devoted to charging a lot for nothing. He charged nothing to accomplish a huge amount. And also, I, I've, I've loved going through what people have been saying on Twitter about personal anecdotes about John Bogle, because he was famously accessible. 
He responded to people with handwritten notes. He sent me a handwritten note after he read one of my articles. Um, and Greg Ipp, who's a journalist for The Wall Street Journal, tweeted out that a limo driver once told me about giving Jack Bogle a ride back from a TV interview. And they got to talking, and Bogle told him about index funds. Upon arrival, Bogle personally helped the driver fill out the paperwork to open an index <laughs> fund account on the hood of his car. <laughs> uh, he was also famously frugal. Yeah. Um, I, I did not catch the person's name, but I read this also on Twitter. It was from a Vanguard employee. He was at the Vanguard cafeteria getting his salad. He put a salad dressing on the salad. Look to his right. There's John Bogle. And John Bogle says, you know, if you keep the salad dressing on the side, they don't charge you for it. And that'll save you a dollar. I've been doing it for years. <laughs> uh, but my favorite quote, and a good way to end this, I think, is from William Bernstein, who's also a money manager and author, big indexer. And he was quoted in the Philadelphia Inquirer as saying, quote, Jack could have been a multi-billionaire on, par- on par with Gates and Buffett. Instead, he turned his company into one owned by its mutual funds and in turn their investors. He basically chose to forego an enormous fortune to do something right for millions of people. I don't know any other story like it in American business history. Simply put, Jack cared. He cared enough about his clients to personally answer their letters. He cared enough about his employees to be on a first-name basis with thousands of them and to pitch in at the phone banks when things got busy. And in the end, he cared enough about his country that he spent much of the last two decades away from his home, tirelessly crusading against the increasingly elephantine and dysfunctional financial system. Uh, And then I'll close here with a quote from Bogle himself. It's about being a good husband, a good father, a good colleague, a good member of the community. Everything else pales by comparison. The the accumulation of material goods is a waste. You can't take them with you anyway. And the waste is typified by our financial system. The essential message is stop focusing on self and start thinking about service to others. This episode of Motleyville Answers is brought to you by Molecule. Molecule is the world's first molecular air purifier capable of destroying air pollutants at a molecular level and reduce symptoms for allergy and asthma sufferers. Molecule replaces 50 years of antiquated technology going beyond the HEPA filter system to both capture and eliminate allergens, mold, bacteria, viruses, and airborne chemicals. That includes pollutants 1,000 times smaller than what a HEPA filter can catch. Many people at The Motley Fool have loved The Molecule, and they immediately went out and bought one, or sometimes more than one, (laughs) after giving it a test run. Not only is it effective in helping people breathe through their noses again, it's easy to use and has a sleek design. For $75 off your first order, visit molekule.com and enter the promo code FOOL. That's molekule.com, promo code FOOL. government shut down, roughly 420,000 Americans across the country are going without pay and have missed, at this point, at least a couple paychecks. Imagine going a month without any income. Would you still be able to pay the bills? Most people wouldn't. As Bro has mentioned before on the show, 40% of U.S. adults don't have enough money and savings to cover a $400 emergency. So, now seems like a really good time to have an episode dedicated to building an emergency fund and what to do if you don't already have one. Right. So, bro, where do you want to start? Well, I'll start for first of all. I, I, I talked about this a little bit in the last episode, but it's people have been focusing on the shutdown uh, on the federal employees, and some people are saying like, well, they're going to get their money eventually. But this is affecting an estimated four million contractors, and then there's so many businesses that are built around the federal government. Suppliers, uh, restaurants, cab drivers, service providers, they're not going to get paid, 
Like they're just missing out on their business. You know, we here at Full HQ, we're at Alexandria, Virginia. We're in the suburbs of Washington D.C. Um, we all, I assume, know people mm. who uh, are being affected by this, including um, spouses of fools who are being affected by this. Um, so it is pretty widespread, um, and there's no question that the economy is going to take a little bit of a hit because of this. Uh, uh, Standard & Poor's actually estimates that very soon the cost of the shutdown is going to exceed the cost of the wall that President Trump <laughs> wants. So it's, it's kind of crazy. Um, but the bottom line is, and we talked about this a little bit in the planning meeting, that if a lot of people would have thought, well, I'm a government employee. I have a safe job. Mm-hmm. For example, very the people stable. in the Coast Guard, yeah. right? And I was, uh, fun fact, I was accepted to the Coast Guard Academy, and I had this Ultimate. Uh, I was thinking of going into the Coast Guard and fly helicopters, but instead I decided I wanted to be a priest, so I didn't go. And we see how that worked out. But you think like if you're in the Coast Guard, your paycheck is saved, and this happens. Mm-hmm. And really, what it goes to show, no matter what situation you're in, something unexpected could happen. And the solution to that is the big old boring emergency fund. Right? It's the most standard advice from all financial planners. But it just shows the need for it. Because if you don't have that emergency fund, you're going to have to rely on other sources for the funds. And we're going to talk about those later in the show and the pros and cons of each option. But all of them are inferior to just having some cash on the side. So, first of all, let's talk about why you would have an emergency fund. All right, we're talking about the shutdown. So, it's an income disruption, but it could also be an unexpected expense home repair, car repair, medical bill, something like that that you didn't budget for. So that's the reason why you would have an emergency fund. What should the size of the emergency fund be? The thing we've always said, three to six months of must-pay expenses. So it's not th- three to six months of income or three to six months of expenses. It's the must-pay expenses. Not Netflix. You not Netflix. feel like that's a must, but right. it's not. So, But then I was thinking, you know, I've been saying that for years because that's what I've always heard from year, mm-hmm. for years. And I was wondering, where did that come from? Was it like one person who's the first person who said that and, and is given credit for it? And the answer is, I couldn't find an answer to that. Oh, yeah. But what I did find is there actually is, uh, while that's the consensus on it, there is a, a, a bit of degree, disagreement. So, first of all, there are people who think three to six months is too much. You have other ways to pay bills. And again, we'll talk about those in a little bit. But some people do think that having that much cash on the side, you're missing out on opportunity cost, what you could have gotten if it were in the stock market, or the things you could have spent it on and, and had some fun. I don't agree with that, but there are people who believe that. Then there are people who believe it should be bigger. So Susie Orman thinks it should be 8 to 12 months of expenses. David Bach, another well-known personal finance writer, thinks it should be at least a year. Wow. And his emergency fund is two years. Wow. Um, and then I was thinking, well, is there sort of any empirical evidence for the size of a, an emergency fund? Uh, well, I looked, and fortunately, Bankrate just came out with a survey, basically asked people, have you had an emergency and how big was it? And they found that 30% of respondents reported that either they or an immediate family member have experienced one major unexpected expense. The average of that expense was $3,750, $3,750. And a third of that, more than a third of it, it was more than $5,000. So that says right there that based on that evidence, a good emergency fund should at least be four, five, six thousand dollars $6,000. Then what about the income disruption? That's usually because you've been laid off in most situations. So I looked at that, and right now, the average duration of unemployment in the U.S. is nine weeks. So a couple of months. And that's about the long-term average. But when you look at things like the Great Recession of a decade ago, 
that spiked to 24 weeks. So basically, on average, the unemployed person was out of work for a half a year. Um, So in those types of situations, I don't think you need an emergency fund for those outlier experiences. I mean, that was the worst economic downturn since the Great Depression. Um, But it definitely makes sense that when you look at the average unemployment of being more than two months, it points to, like, yeah, that whole like three to six months, it's not a bad guideline. Um, so we should point out that one of the reasons why some people think you don't really need that big of an emergency fund is because when you've been laid off, in many situations, you get a severance pay, right? The average severance pay is one to two weeks for every year of service. So, you know, if you've worked for a company for five years, you could expect a severance pay of five to ten weeks. I hear the Molly Fool. Yeah, it's a little more generous. Also, yeah. I've heard discussions of not being quite so generous. But one thing I should so I think one thing everyone should do is find out your own company's yeah. severance package. And in the case of you know the Enrons and the Worldcoms and the Lehman Brothers and all those situations, many of them they were so they went out of business. They were really I don't know the exact details for each of those companies, but in many situations when a company goes under, you lose your job and they don't have money to pay right. a severance. There's also unemployment benefits, and those are um, run by each state. But uh, the maximum they, they pay per week is pretty low. The average across the country is $400 per week, so $1,600 per month. Um, not a lot of money. Better than nothing, but mm-hmm. not a lot of money. Um, for those federal employees out there who might be wondering, can you apply for unemployment benefits? Depending on your situation, the answer is yes. Oh, good. But... Uh, if you then go back to work and you get the back pay, you have to return the unemployment benefits, which might be fine. Maybe you just need Free something load. to get you there. Right, yeah. exactly. Um, but so certainly for people in that situation, it's something to look at. So bottom line, what should the size of your emergency fund be? I still stick with the three to six months must-pay expenses. The type of situations that would say, like, I need to have a bigger one, I have big non-negotiable expenses, like a mortgage or a car car loan. I have a big family. I don't have extended family who can help me. Those are all, and I have a job that is more likely that either A, I'm going to lose it during the next downturn, or at least my pay will be somehow affected by that. So, those are all factors that you would use to determine the size of your emergency fund. What should it be in? Cash. Plain and simple. Now, these days, you can get a higher yield. The Motley Fool has a website called The Ascent, where you can find some good yields. Um, CDs now are actually paying upwards of 3%, some over 3%. Those are worth looking at. Just know that if, you, if you're going to buy a CD, you're supposed to keep it until the duration, you know, two, three-year CD. You want to know the CD's policy if you need to cash it in early. Usually, it's something like three to six months of interest, but you want to know that beforehand. Okay. Let's say you're now in the situation where you need the emergency fund, right? Mm-hmm. For some reason, you've had an income disruption or just a big expense. How can you stretch it out? Essentially, what should you do to your finances to put yourself on emergency footing to make sure it lasts as long as possible? Well, as I pointed out, the, the emergency fund is based on must-pay expenses, so you want to look at the discretionary expenses, right? You want to do as much as possible to not spend money. In the last episode, we talked about how you could suspend your cable service, actually. You don't have to cancel it. You can suspend it. Um, You look at the things that you normally spend money on, and you try to cut back. But it's not just your spending. You might be on some sort of automatic investment plan. You might be sending $400 a month to the 529 plan. You might be spending $200, $300, $400 a month to an IRA. You probably should stop that for now. 
Um, you want to be in contact with the people to whom you owe bills. And you start with the people who have the biggest influence over your credit score, and that's usually banks. So, call the people who are providing your mortgage, your car loan, your school loan. Let them know the situation. More and more companies every day now, at least for, in terms of the shutdown, are, are announcing ways that they're going to accommodate mm. these folks. But you want to know what that is now. They're going to either extend deadlines, maybe uh, extend grace periods, waive certain fees. Yeah, our, our neighbor, she's furloughed, and she said that the most your credit card company will do is waive the late fees. Right. That's still something. That's still something. But you want to start there because those are the companies that if you don't pay those bills, it's going to affect your credit score. Um, it's, it really is interesting. There's a bank out in, in um, Oklahoma, first Oklahoma bank. They have more than 6,000 federal employees as customers, and they are going to cover their bills until they start getting paid. Wow. Yeah. Which I think that's, first of all, that's just a great story. And second of all, it just shows that when a lot of people are thinking of this federal shutdown, they think of Washington, D.C., but there are federal employees all over the country. Um, more and more companies are also announcing um, ways that they're going to either, uh, basically some form of accommodation. So um, Verizon, AT&T, T-Mobile, uh, more restaurants are coming out, especially here in the D.C. area, saying they're giving discounts. Oh, yeah, Jose Andreas is feeding people for free. <clears throat> right, so you want to be aware of what's available to you. Yeah. Um, the other thing you need to do is look for money you're due. So, for example, obviously, if someone owes you money, it's time to collect. <laughs> but the other thing would be uh, flexible spending, for example. Now, this is an interesting thing about medical flexible spending. Let's say you signed up to, to set aside $2,700. You don't have to wait until all that has been taken out of your paycheck to get that money. You could submit a legitimate reimbursement today and get that full $2,700 Today, even before you've put all that money away from your 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 from your paycheck, is that true with dependent care? It too? is not true okay, with I was dependent say, care because I didn't get that. Didn't happen right. with me. Different with dependent care. Okay, but so that's so it's a good it's a good time to get your flexible spending money. The other way you maybe do money is a tax refund. So the IRS has said that people they're going to start accepting returns on January twenty eighth. And they've said that the shutdown will not affect their ability to process tax returns and, ta and give refunds. And on average, according to the IRS, you get a refund in 21 days. So, if you think you're going to get a tax refund, now's a good time to start getting your taxes ready. And of course, there's the state refund, too. Now, there are services that will speed up your refund. They're called refund anticipation loans. Generally, not a great idea. Obviously, there are going to be fees attached to that. But... If you need the money and you can't wait 21 days to get your refund, that is an option. Um, you should access other resources available to you, such employee assistance programs. We at The Fool have one. Uh, it's basically a, a, a program by which you call them and they can point you to helpful resources. Uh, many uh, employers, as well as unions and associations, have assistance funds. Um, we at The Fool have Fool in Need. Mm -hmm. If someone's in any financial trouble, they can apply and get some money. Uh, federal employees actually have the Federal Employee Education and Assistance Fund, which you can find at feea.org. But contact any sort of these types of organizations to which you have an association or you belong to, and they might have some sort of way of helping you out. And also, um, other organizations like United Way and Red Cross, they're always basically offering resources and help to people, but they are starting to do more specifically for federal employees. Um, okay, 
So those are ways to make your emergency fund last a little longer. What should you do once it's gone? What if you don't have any more cash in the bank? So I'm going to lay out a few options and give the pros and cons. And depending on your situation, one might be better than the other. And the first one is sell investments in regular taxable accounts. So if you just have a regular brokerage account and you own stocks, just sell those. The pros there are it's pretty easy, pretty liquid. You'll get the cash pretty soon. The market is down somewhat. Maybe it's a good time to do some tax loss harvesting. You can sell a stock that is less than what you paid for it. Wait 30 days to buy it back. But if you don't have money, don't buy it back. But at least that'll reduce your tax bill this year. So that's a pro. It's pretty easy to get that money. The con is, ideally, you bought that investment as a long-term investment, and now you're going to have to sell it. And the market is down, and that's one of the worst. That's one of the reasons why you want an emergency fund that you're not forced to sell stocks when they're down. Plus, if you are selling at a gain, you're going to owe taxes in a year. So if you sell an investment with a big capital gain, make sure you have a plan for paying those taxes. You don't want to forget about it and then be surprised come April 15th in 2020. Another option, of course, is credit cards. Credit cards are easy because everyone takes them. And if you are a federal employee and you do expect to get your money back, and they just did pass a, a bill that basically says once people do go back to work, they will get their pay, credit card is a, is a good source of short-term money, and you just got to make sure you pay the bill off. Mm-hmm. Maybe you get some points for you know, airline miles or something like that. The cons are, of all the debt you could owe, this has got the higher interest rate. In December of last year, the Fed raised interest rates. But despite that, rates across the board and everything from treasuries to mortgages went down, with one exception, credit cards. Credit card rates went up, and they're now at all-time highs, according to creditcards.com. Really? Yes. So, at least as long as they've been tracking it. Uh, So, that's obviously the reason why you want to avoid credit cards. It is a short-term bridge, but it is not a long-term solution. Another option is home equity. And for most people, that's a home equity line of credit. Um, the pro there is if you've got the equity, you probably can get it. There's some uh, setup costs, and you have to do a credit check and things like that, but it's usually not a big deal. And the interest rate is going to be much lower than what you pay on a credit card. The con of that is that you're basically putting your house as collateral, which is always a tricky thing. Um, also, due to the new tax law that was passed a year ago, the interest on a home equity loan is no longer deductible unless you use it to improve your house. So, if you're using it to cover short-term bills, that interest is no longer deductible. Um, so, generally, I'm not a big fan of home equity lines of credit, but it's available. Another option, borrow from your employer-sponsored retirement account, your 401k, your 403b, or in the case of federal employees, the thrift savings plan known as the TSP. The pros here are that it's pretty easy. And it, even though it's called a loan, you're really just getting your own money. So there's no credit check. You don't have to get a credit approval or anything like that. <laughs> Rick and I know all about right, the exactly. 401k well, loan. So you know how easy it is. It was very, it was so easy. Almost when too I, easy. It was so easy that when I asked Rick about ev- any aspect of the process, he was like, I don't remember. It must have been really easy because I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> it is easy. And you're paying the interest to yourself. Yeah. Um, not to a bank. So those are the pros. And you can the most you can uh, borrow is fifty thousand dollars or half of your vested balance, whichever is less. The cons are that money gets taken out of the market. So if the market takes off, well, in the course of this loan, you'll miss out on that. 
Also, if you don't pay off the loan, it's considered a distribution, and you'll pay taxes and penalties if you're not 59 and a half. Um, and generally, you have five years to do it. So again, it's a, it's a fine short-term solution, but you have to have a plan to pay it back. Because if you don't, not only will you pay the taxes and the penalties, but you're going to miss out on the future growth of what that money could have provided you if it were left alone in your 401k. Mm-hmm. I should say that there recently was a bill proposed to make it easier for federal employees to access the money in their TSP. Um, I haven't filed the details yet, but know that that's also on the horizon for you folks out there at that. All right, another option. What about your retirement, other retirement accounts like an IRA? You can always access, access that money anytime. Interestingly, if you take that money out and get it back in within 60 days, it's like you never did anything. Oh. So it's a way, while you legally cannot borrow money from an IRA, people refer to this as the IRA loan. Take it out, you just got to make sure you get it back within 60 days. So just a note of caution, this is considered a rollover, and there are some rules about rollovers, including a limit to only one every 12 months. So if you've already done it once, and then the next time you try it again, it's actually considered a distribution. You won't be able to put the money back in the IRA, and you may owe taxes and penalties. So make sure you learn all about the ins and outs before trying this strategy. Now, if you're taking money out of a Roth IRA, and you don't get the money back in, the contribution you put in will still be tax and penalty free. It's any growth that you took out that you'll that you'll pay taxes and penalties if you're not 59 and a half. Traditional IRA, if you take it out and don't get it back in, you're going to pay taxes and the penalties. And of course, the negatives there too is the same with the 401k. If you don't pay it back, you'll have missed out on all that growth and your retirement will be compromised. Or maybe the stock market tanks. Well, that's true. Some people might. Some people might time it very well. So let's try to look on the bright side. <laughs> that's though. right. There's someone in the studio, in fact. <laughs> uh, okay, and then my last option: borrow from family and friends. Um, and this, you know, if you if you are in a family where that's fine, it's not embarrassing, and it won't cause any any friction with folks. It's a perfectly fine solution. When I bought my first house, it involved borrowing money from my dad, who in the end just said, you know what, don't pay it back. You're just not going to inherit as much when I eventually die. But I was happy with that. Yeah. Um, so that's a great option if you can do it. The cons of it are it can cause troubles. A borrowing money is always can be very difficult with family. Right. And keeping things fair. And, right. And, what ha- and, what, and if, you've, if you're not in a position of having being able to pay it back, that causes problems. So, Last resort? Is that bro's last resort? Well, it depends. I mean, if you have that family where, um, you know, people are generally well off and have established, like, listen, if you're ever in trouble, I'm here to help you out. I think that's the first resort. Mm-hmm. It's great. To, it's probably an interest-free loan, and you don't have to go through all the other hassles. No paperwork. Right. Not a lot of paperwork. Right, right. So it just depends on your situation. So... There you have it. Building an emergency fund is the most boring of financial planning advice ever, because sitting on a big pile of cash just isn't very exciting. But right now, I mean, there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Americans who either A, wish they had built an emergency fund, Mm -hmm. or are very happy they did. Regardless of your situation, having one, I think, is an important part, really the foundation of a good, solid financial plan. And what's your advice, though, for, like you said, those who are furloughed will eventually get back pay. So, they will eventually come into a big pile of money. Right. Um, do you have any advice, then? Yeah. Well, so, obviously, if you've borrowed any money to do this, 
Pay it back. Pay it back. If you've stopped contributing to your IRAs, 529s, or something like that, get back on that track. I think there actually could be a silver lining to this, in the sense that if you go without a paycheck for a while, it really forces you to prioritize your budget. And I think it's very possible you eliminate expenses that you thought were important, and then you realize, you know what, actually, I don't really need that. Mm-hmm. Um, so once you're back on firmer footing, consider like, well, maybe I, you know, maybe I don't need cable anymore, or maybe I didn't need this service, or maybe I didn't need the gym membership like I thought that I did. Um, but then once you get that cash, don't go nuts. Don't be feeling like, oh, I got this big check now, I'm going to go on vacation or anything like that. The number one priority, obviously, is to build up that emergency fund. So, so start listening to this podcast episode <laughs> all right. over again. Right. Just rewind, and, and then it's this virtuous circle. Right. Bro, we're not done talking about Jack Bogle. Because while at the beginning of the show, you did show an extensive amount of knowledge about one John C. Bogle, I contend that you don't know Jack. Are you ready? I'm going to see if I can stop I'm ready. you. And it's interesting. I'll just point out, as someone who did interview him once, and many people will say this, he insisted on be calling Jack. Like if you called him Mr. Bogle, he would say, please call me Jack. So we'll see if I know Jack. Yeah, okay. All right. We'll see if I can stump you. Some of these questions are going to be pretty hard. All right. As you mentioned, uh, Jack's first index fund, the First Index Investment Trust, uh, would later went on to be renamed apparently the Vanguard 500 Index Fund, mm-hmm. uh, and it started off with about 11 million. When did it cross the 100 billion milestone? In what year? Or, or you could tell me in how many years do you think it took? 1997. It's close. 1999. No, okay. Wow. Bogle predicted in January of 1992 that it would very likely surpassed the Magellan Fund before 2001, which it did. And as you mentioned, Vanguard currently has $5 trillion in assets under management. All right. Also, as you mentioned, Bogle's senior thesis was titled The Economic Role of the Investment Company. And in December of 1949, he happened to read an article in What Magazine that inspired his senior thesis and his life's work? Fortune or Forbes? It was fortune. Very nice. Bogle referred to it as a remarkable accident, him reading this article that sparked his career. He said, if I hadn't opened that magazine, I wouldn't be in this business today. You know, it's interesting. Jason's why I got a great article in the Wall Street Journal uh, as a tribute to John Bogle, but did point out that, so he, you know, he wrote that article in 1951, I think. He joins yeah. Wellington, which was an actively managed fund shop, because there weren't index funds back then. And there are points in Bogle's history, even as late as 1973, where he is defending actively management Mm. and saying that, no, if you own a mutual fund, the average person will beat the market. It wasn't until that he was forced out of Wellington and then started Vanguard that he really embraced the index concept. Mm -hmm. Uh, But even while he was there, I don't know, something like half the assets of Vanguard were actively managed. It's just one of those interesting things about him because he's so known for indexing, yet he ran a company that that manages trillions of dollars in actively managed funds. And still, though, still some still, Vanguard funds are actively right, managed. 30% right? of their assets yeah. are actively managed. All right, Paul Samuelson, the first American to win the Nobel Prize in economics, um, he was highly influential on Bogle, um, and he also liked Bogle as well. He ranked Bogle's invention of the index fund alongside the invention of what other major achievements? The wheel, 
Oh, that's like sliced bread and cheese or something like that. Oh, those are good inventions. <laughs> the wheel, the alphabet, and the Gutenberg press. Well, I was close. You were very close. Yeah, so many people will say, like, you know, we'll call Bogle as like the father of indexing. But the concept actually did exist, um, was discussed for years before the first index. And one of them was by Paul Samuelson. Even Benjamin Graham uh, came to a point where he's like, it's really hard to beat the market. Um, but it was, it was really Bogle who made it the first publicly available retail index fund. Hmm. All right. Rick Stengel, the former managing editor of Time and a friend of Bogle, said that Bogle was a straight shooter and fond of describing pretentious people as all blank and no cattle. All hat. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Stengel described Bogle as all cattle and not very much hat. What is Vanguard named after? So it is named after uh, a ship. Um, from the battle, the 1798 battle of the Nile, um, Horatio Nelson versus Napoleon, and they won. Very nicely done. Yes, the HMS Vanguard. The company is noted for its nautical theme. Employees are called crew, crew members. members. Yeah, the yeah. cafeteria is the galley. Yeah, the gym is called Ship Shape, and the company store is the Chandlery. I guess that's a. I'll take your word for it. I've been I've been to their campus, and as I said before, they put um, they put the industrial and industrial park. I mean, it's a no frills place, um, which makes me happy as a Vanguard shareholder, of course. As quoted in the New York Times by Jeff Summer, Jack was proud that he was not a what? A billionaire. Yes. There you go. You got it. Got it. Despite managing, of course, all that money, he was worth roughly eighty million, according to estimates. Um, he said people are so often measured by the size of their financial assets. He said his were not really awesome. I don't share those values. He said, apparently, he only flew first class once because the upgrade was only going to cost him fifty dollars. <laughs> so there you go, bro. You've impressed me. I'm I'm going to say that yes, you actually do know Jack. Yeah, it was thank very you. good. One, one fact I left out of the bio because I thought for sure you're going to ask about it is that he was actually a twin. Oh yeah, yeah. And he outlived his brother by more than uh, twenty years. Do you know what his congenital heart defect was? I I don't know the name of it, but I, I think it caused his heart to race like I don't know two hundred beats per minute. Or yeah, something it, like ca- that. His heart, it has his heart uh, has a hard time regulating the electrical current in his heart. And so, yeah, crazy, huh? Yeah, very crazy. Super crazy. All right. Very impressed, bro. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. All right. That's the show. It's edited bogglingly by Rick Engdahl. (laughs) Mind-bogglingly. 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 It's edited (laughs) mind-bogglingly by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. We've got a mailbag episode coming up. So we'll get to that. Um... For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody.